0: The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. good morning. How are you? Good? You have your coffee in you? I'm not a coffee drinker, so I don't know what it does to you. I think it's a good thing that I'm not a coffee drinker because you're about to see that I don't lack energy or the problem of talking. And so I drink a lot of soda, though, and I say that that's my coffee, um, but I don't drink coffee, and it's a gift to you, not to me. But anyways, uh, I'm really honored to be here. I am so excited. I thought last night was absolutely incredible. I was chewing on it. All night long, still am this morning, and can't wait to go home and apply it to my life. And how many of y'all would agree it was such a great word by Pastor Sarah? Um, I am really excited to be here. I love Pastor Josh and Sarah, and I love what they're doing, and I fully believe in New Song Church and his conference and everything that's here. And so we're really excited to be here. I brought my husband with me, and luckily he's not one of the only guys here, but he's sitting on the front row. And so this is my husband, Ethan. Um, I, I think I might have a picture of my entire family. We have three beautiful children. Um, Addie is the oldest. She's four. Kate will be three in March. And Preston turned one in August. And then we are expecting our fourth, who will be due in March as well. And so we did four in about four and a half years. And um, so you can pray for me, but you also know that I have a good marriage. I'm just kidding but really, I absolutely love being a mom. It is my answered prayers from when I was a little girl. And I can't thank God enough for the ones he chose to let me raise. And so these are my little tribe. I call them my mini circus. And people sometimes ask me, why do you call it a mini circus? And I said, well, people pay to go to a circus. And um, it's really a fun thing. And I said, the thing about a circus is it's fun and it's like um, crazy all at the same time. And that is basically my life. Like, it's a whole lot of fun, but there's never a calm moment, even when they're all asleep, I bring the chaos. So, I don't know. We just don't have a calm life, and we're okay with that. So, that's my family. I love them, and we're really excited to bring in, just so you know, this is the final child. Praise the good Lord above. I see a light at that end of the tunnel. (laughs) We're not messing around. We will make sure that it is the last one in every possible way, medically and every other way. Anyways, um, my middle daughter is Kate and she's the one that when she talks, it's very rare. Like for instance, um, we do this mom's day out program. I say it's for them to get smarter, but in all actuality, it's for me to be a better mom. So I send them away. And, um, So there they are, she does this costume parade. She's two and a half and almost three, and she does a costume parade. And my oldest daughter decides to be Belle, and y'all, she owned Belle. She walked around that costume parade. She wanted everyone to know who she was. She kept telling me, she woke up at 7 a.m., she was like, i got to put on my Belle costume. I was like, okay. And she said, Mama, am I the prettiest Belle you've ever seen? I was like, you sure are, baby girl. Like, oh, yes. Kate, on the other hand, she wanted to be Sky, which is from Paw Patrol, and it just shows their personalities to a T., But here we go, we go to this costume parade, and not once, not once, they're giving her so much candy, not once did she crack a smile. She looked at those people so mean-mugged, I was like, sweetheart, are you having fun? I was like, okay, mean-mugged the whole way. We got home, she talked about it nonstop. So this little girl doesn't talk much, but when she talks, it is usually very funny or very smart for her age. And so recently, we got to talking, we're talking about how there's a baby in mommy's tummy, and um, I started to wonder why every time I said that, she would be like, baby, am my tummy? And I was like, no, mommy's tummy. And she'd be like, okay. And so one morning, we're all in my bed because that's me being lazy. And here we are, we're all in my bed. And um, she points to my belly button and she says, baby. And I was like, yes. And then she points to her belly button and she says, baby. And I was like, uh. and then she points to Preston's belly button and she says, baby. And it all started to dawn on me that I am winning at being a mom. And my child doesn't have no idea what a belly button is. None whatsoever. Which to give her full credit, I have basically been pregnant her entire life. And so she now believes that everyone has a baby. I was like, sweetheart, that's a belly button. She's like, no baby. So if you see my child and she thinks you have a baby, she's not trying to be offensive. She genuinely thinks we all have babies. And so, um... That's her. She also is to a T determined. We are going to name this baby ABCD. And she is going to go to her grave telling me ABCD, ABCD. And I'm like, oh, man, I hope you love your little sibling. I hope it's a boy. But I hope you love your little sibling, ABCD. So don't judge us. That is the child of our fourth kid, um, name of our fourth kid. I'm totally kidding. It's not. Don't tweet that. But anyways, that's a little bit about my family, and we love them. So I am, um, we're about to get real into this, okay? You all love me already, and I love you, so we're just going to get into it. Um, I have a topic on my heart that isn't a popular topic, and why it came into my heart is actually kind of a heavy reasoning. I personally believe the number one thing that the enemy is using to destroy my life, your life, and our world today is context. And let me explain. Um, In my sphere of knowledge, recently, when I say sphere of knowledge, meaning I know this family, know of this family, but I don't personally know them, okay? They're part of our church and whatnot. In our sphere of knowledge, a young girl, young teenager, decided to commit suicide in the most determined way that you could probably do it. And then just a few weeks before that, one of the friends in her school, who was about the same age, a very young teenager, had just committed suicide in a very determined way. And I couldn't handle it. I couldn't go to sleep. I was mad. And I looked at God and I was talking to him and I said, why? How could somebody so young make such a forever decision off of the moments that they're facing? How could we do that? How? How are we the most, the most suicides are happening right now. That's what they're saying. Maybe in history, the most are happening right now. Why? And I just felt like the Lord told me, and I realized that the number one reason why people commit suicide, if you ask somebody who tried to commit suicide and lived through it, which most of them will say, if they did, they'll say, I actually didn't want to die. I just didn't want to live anymore. And the reason, the number one reason for suicide is because you feel utterly hopeless in your situation. So how have we become a generation that is so hopeless? How have we become moms who are so hopeless that we can deal with postpartum depression and make decisions when our babies haven't even had their first birthday that change our forever? How have we become such a hopeless generation? And I truly believe it is because we have lost the art and the understanding of the power of context. See, what the enemy has done is he has come into your life and he has told you that the bad will never change. You will be in this season forever. This was never, ever going to change in your life. Your marriage will never change. Your children will never change. You will change diapers for the rest of your life. This is my life. And here's what he does. He tells you the bad will never change, but the one thing he tells you will change is the thing that cannot change, and that is God. He'll come to you and he'll tell you he won't come through this time. He won't do it for you like he did it for her. And he'll try to get you to believe that That's going to change. That the God who cannot change, it is not possible for him to change. That he will change. And the bad that you're facing cannot change. It will not change no matter what. And here's the reason why. Because if he can get you to believe that the bad won't change and the good will change, then he can get you to make an eternal decision that will forever affect your life. Because you're living a hopeless life. So I want to talk to you today about the power of context. And I I really hope, I promise you I'm going to try to be funny. But more than I'm trying to be funny, I just don't want you to make a forever decision based on a a momentary circumstance. A momentary issue that you're walking through. I want you to hear that there is a God of hope that's ready to change your life. But you're going to have to understand the power of context. Um, Just to give you the definition of context real quick. It says the circumstances that form the setting for an event statement, or idea in the terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. It's the part of something written or spoken that immediately proceeds and follow a word or passage to clarify its meaning. It comes from two words, which means to weave together. Um, back in the 50s, I barely missed that time frame, in case you are wondering, but what I've heard of the 50s is they did a lot of farming. For everything that they ate, for everything that they um, wanted They did a lot on the farm. Now, I um, live in a new generation where farming is actually a fad, and we do it within, like, the context of our kitchen. And so, it's like, oh, I'm going to grow basil. And we're really good at that one little thing that we bought from Central Market, and we keep it alive for zero days if you're in my household. So, but farming was a big deal in the 50s. In the 50s, there weren't as many suicides. Here's why. They understood the power of context. See, they knew that when they planted a seed, there was a process before that seed became something. They knew that that seed needed to be watered. They knew that that seed needed to go underground for a season. And then all of a sudden, it would sprout up. But when it sprouted, it wasn't ready. It still had a season until it was ripe. See, they understood context because they understood the process of planting and reaping. They understood that what they sow, they will reap. But here's the other thing. They knew a winter was coming, but they never, ever, ever thought the winter wouldn't end. They always knew spring was right around the corner. They always knew, and in their winter seasons, they weren't sitting and sulking. They weren't doing all those things. No, no, no. They were preparing for the spring. See, we've become a hopeless generation because we've gotten lost in our winters. And we begin to believe that our winters are our forevers. And we begin to think that God, the creator of the universe, forgot to develop a spring to end your winter. But the reality of it is, spring is on its way. And if we could go back in time and just for a second understand the power of what we sow, we will reap. Then we could understand the power of context. So I have a couple points for you this morning on the power of context. And I really hope we can dive into this but the number one prob- or the number one thing about context is the problem of context. The first point, the problem of context. I believe the reason why my generation has the hardest time with context is because of social media. Because of social media, we are teaching this generation how to take things out of context. For instance, not too long ago, last week actually, I decided I would post a really cute picture of my baby bump because all these people were asking about it. And I was like, great. Um, So I stood in front of this mirror and I got all ready to take my picture. I was feeling real cute. I was in sweat. So I was like, they'll know I wasn't trying too hard. You know, like, I've got this. And so I stood and I took that picture and I looked at the picture. And all I could see were all the toys that were around me. And I was like, oh, no. So what you would think I did was clean. No, no, no. I just kicked them all out of the frame of the picture, okay? And then I looked, and there's a smudge on my mirror, and I was like, oh, no, I need a clean house. So instead of getting the Windex and cleaning, it, I just, like, grabbed my shirt, and I was like, yep, that's good. All right. And I took this picture, and <laughs> y'all, I wish I could say people knew that I was faking it, but they are all like, oh, my goodness, your house is so clean. How do you do it all? You have three young children and oh my goodness, your little bump, you're just so cute and skinny, and oh, you have the best pregnancies, and all this stuff. I was like, oh, girlfriend, if only you would have seen (laughs) the living room, you didn't even know we had wood floors. Like, you couldn't see them, and uh, the kitchen had more dirty dishes than it had clean dishes, and if you would have looked to the right, you would have seen that you can't even get in or out of my front door, because the kids thought that was a good place for their backpacks, and their coats, and their shoes, and um, You had no idea. And then you're talking about how wonderful my pregnancy is, but really, just a day before that, I had gotten some really hard news about my pregnancy. And if I were honest with you, I had just actually walked out of my closet from crying and asking God why. But you didn't know all that because you saw a picture that was not only filtered by me by kicking everything out of the frame, it was also filtered by Instagram so that that way you didn't see that I had no makeup on. It was all changed but here's the reality. Some of these women have taken my one photo out of context and said she has the perfect life. She has this wonderful life that they say. We all do it. We'll see a picture of a couple going on a date and she'll be like, oh, my husband, he bought me these flowers. No, he didn't. You went to Central Market, set them on the counter and you took a picture and gave your husband credit. Like, let's be honest, but you don't know that. You don't know that. And then all of the sudden, you're starting to sit there. And here's what the enemy does. He takes everything out of context so that you will create a standard. And when you create a standard that is out of context, it will never be one you can meet. So here's what he does. He takes that moment and he puts it into your life and it's out of context because you don't know that they actually fought the entire date, but you think they have the perfect marriage. And he begins to tell you that your marriage isn't as good as her marriage. He begins to tell you that your husband doesn't love you as much as her husband loves her. And he begins to build your case against your life so that you will now take everything out of context and make a decision that will forever change it because you viewed something out of context. See, that's what social media has taught us. And anything we take out of context will lead us into sin. This is what the enemy does. Let's just go back to the very beginning. Think of the garden. Here they are in the garden. Genesis 39. No, sorry. Genesis 3 verse 1. The serpent was with the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Just FYI, she added, even touch it. God just said you're not supposed to eat it, okay? When we add from the Bible, we're still taking it out of context. You cannot add to the Bible. It is the final word how it is. So here she did, she added to it. But here's what the enemy did. He took it one step further. He said, you won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be open, and as soon as you eat it, you will be like God knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced convinced she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her so she took some of the fruit and ate it and then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too at that moment their eyes were open and suddenly they felt shame at their, their nakedness listen when we take the word of God out of context it will always lead us to sin But this is what the Bible, this is what the Satan has done. He has tried to take the truth of the Bible out of context and develop our world. I'll give you a big one that's happening in our culture right now, marriage. He's taken it out of context. Marriage was God's idea. It started with God. But he has taken marriage out of context. And now he is creating an image and a standard that people can't meet. So when they get into marriage and it's not what they thought it would be because it was originally taken out of context. Here's another one that our culture takes out of context all the time is sex. I mean, all the time. And here's what happens with it. They tell you that you need to have sex before marriage. Just out of curiosity, before I get into this, how many of you are single in here? You don't want to raise your hand right now. It's okay. We're going to talk about sex. You're going to be real uncomfortable. God loves you. <laughs> but here's what he does. He does. He tells you you need to have sex before marriage. And he takes it out of context. But what you don't understand, and here's what I need you to hear. If you understood that when you take sex out of context, it will destroy things. And if it's not healed and if it's not dealt with, when it is taken out of context, it could actually hurt and destroy the very gift from God that you've been asking for. Listen. So you take sex out of context and you put it into the singlehood life and you do it and all this stuff. But then here's what happens. It redefines it for you. So now when you get married and you have sex, it doesn't feel right. It just doesn't seem to have the right emotions. It doesn't seem to make sense anymore. So maybe, and then here's what he does. He takes it out of context again and says, well, maybe it's just the man you married. Maybe it's just this. Maybe it's the consequences of your past. Maybe it's all these different things, and he tries to take it out of context. Listen, anything taken out of context will hurt you. It will lead you to sin. If I would have understood that taking sex out of context of marriage, what it would have done to me, I would not have made the same decisions I did when I was single. I wouldn't have. But the reality of it was, is I thought it would be no big deal, it was just a one-time deal that turned into an habitual sin of my life. And then all of a sudden, I got married, and marriage was hard. And it wasn't right, and it felt wrong, and it, just was, lo- it was just not on. It seemed so off to me. But the reality of it is, is because the reason it was off is because I had redefined something that was never meant to be defined that way. See, I had told myself, this is what it's supposed to be like, but it was all taken out of context. When you build your life on something that is out of context, it will not be sturdy ground for you. It will not. It will actually hurt the very thing that is actually a gift from God. Please hear me. Your decisions today will affect your tomorrow. And our culture is trying to tell you that you can get by with that. And it's not true. You can't do it. Anytime we take something out of the Bible, it's going to lead to sin. Now, I understand some of us are like, you know, Elaine, I would never take something out of context in the Bible. So I was telling my dad this, and my dad offered me some old man jokes. So just bear with me because he's going to listen to this, and he's going to want to know that I shared them with you. So these are old man dad jokes, okay? So you can take anything out of the Bible. If you take something out of the Bible, you can prove just about anything, okay? So here we are. You can prove that Moses played tennis because the Bible says Moses refused to serve in the courts of Pharaoh they get worse. Just wait. You can also prove that David had a motorcycle because the Bible says that David's triumph was served throughout the land. And then he has this one about women, but I don't tell that one. Basically, he says you can prove that there will be no women in heaven because the Bible says there was 30 minutes of silence. And then, so he says that. I was ready to punch him, but he said that and he did it in like a women's conference. He didn't think through it very well. And a woman came up to him and she was like, well, pastor, there won't be any pastors in heaven either. I was like, well, touche. So you can prove anything. I know you're not going to take any of those in a theological debate. But here's one of the most common ones that we all take out of context. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good. Okay, I agree with it. But hold on. See, our problem is we have now taken the Bible and created the Bible all about me. How it's going to serve me. How it's going to help me. What it's going to do for me. But listen, the Bible was never written to be about you. It was always written to be about Jesus. He's not into making one man shows. What you need to know about Jeremiah 29 11 is it was written to a body of people. Listen, God has plans for you. But here's the reality of it. He actually has plans for the body of Christ. And when you align your life with the body of Christ and become part of his body, that's when your plans come into play. But here's the reality of it. We start living in sin and all of a sudden things go wrong and we're like, well, God said he has a plan for me. He sure does, but it's only within the context of the body of Christ. You can't take the Bible out of context and hope that it's going to change your life. If you get in context with Jesus, then the Bible will change your life. The Bible was not written to make a one-man show. He did that once, and it was with Jesus, and now it's over. So now it's your turn to get in line with what he would like to do in your life by joining in with the body of Christ. The second thing about um, context is the perspective of context. Context is going to give you perspective, and that's really important because the Bible says that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So here we are. I just thought we would look at Joseph's life, and I'm going to summarize it because it's like, a course of four chapters in the Bible, and I thought that you all might want to hear Jess later, and so I'll just summarize his story. But I need you to hear the power of context through Joseph's life. First of all, he was 17 years old when his name comes into fact in the Bible. And he had all these brothers, and his brothers already didn't like him because he was the favorite kid. I fully relate with him because I have two older brothers, and I'm the favorite kid. But, I'm joking, my oldest brother's the favorite. But... Anyways, he had two older brothers, and they all hated him. And then one time he had this dream, and the dream was basically that all of you people, all you brothers are going to serve me. And so Joseph wasn't the brightest bulb in the box, and so he told his brothers, which only made them hate him more, obviously. And then he has another dream, and he tells them again. At this point, they're past their little limit of hate, and they decide we're going to act on it. Just FYI, anytime you act on hate, it's probably going to turn bad. Just a little word. But listen, so then they decide we're going to do this. So they were like, we're going to kill him. One of them got wise, realized killing him wasn't the best, so they decided to sell him into slavery. They sell him into slavery, and then those traitors then sell him to a guy who is um, Potiphar, who is one of Pharaoh's top people. Now Potiphar all of a sudden starts seeing that Joseph has the hand of God on his life. It says that in Genesis 39 verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of the Egyptian master. Just so you know, he was still a slave, yet he chose to serve. Your attitude in these seasons will tell you a lot about where you're headed. So listen, so here he is. Well, they see the favor on him, so they promote him. They put him in charge of everything in the household. All of that begins to succeed. He promotes him again and puts him in charge of all the administrative stuff. Then... Little hiccup in the road. Potiphar's wife thinks that Joseph's cute, and so she would like to have an affair. Joseph's a good, wise man. He says, nuh-uh, I ain't doing that. But she's persistent. And so one time, he, it actually says in the Bible that he tried to keep his face from her. But one time, they happened to be in the same room, and she began to pursue him. And like any good, godly man would, he broke away, but he left his cloak behind. And she then used that cloak to frame him and say, look what this person tried to do to me. And so, of course, Potiphar got mad. He put him in prison. I don't know about you, but I don't know if you've ever thought that prison is like the biggest setback of all time. Like, that's terrible. But he gets into prison. He still has the favor of God on his life. So they actually promote him and put him in charge of everything in prison. The warden makes him, hey, you're you're my favorite guy. You're in charge of it all. Then Pharaoh gets upset with his cupbearer and his baker. And he says, y'all two go to prison. And they put him under Joseph. Joseph might have seen this as a light at the end of the tunnel. But they get there. They have a dream. Then no one can interpret it. Joseph interprets it. And they both come true. But he says to one of them, he says, hey, when you get out of here, will you remember me and tell Pharaoh about me so that I might get out of here? And so then he says this statement. And I just wonder if in that moment, God was like, oh, yeah, you're not quite ready yet. But here, the reality of it was, remember, it all started with a dream, which was a God-given dream with a God-given gift. It just hadn't been matured. Now he's in prison, and he's using his God-given gift to help people. And in that moment, that gift is being matured. Then the Bible says that two years later, two years later, Pharaoh has a dream, and no one can solve it. And finally, the guy in prison was like, oh, wait, there was someone in prison that could do this. So they called Joseph. And it says that they immediately called him, and they wanted him quickly. Can I just tell you, no matter how slow it seems to be going, as soon as the master calls, it will all go fast. So don't give up. So then he gets called into it. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh finds favor with him. And he says, hey, I need you in charge of all of my land. I need you to make sure to take care of all of this. And then, y'all, 30-something years later, from the moment he had the dream, he now sees the dream play out right in front of his eyes. But here was the problem. When he got the dream, he thought that it was going to be about him, how everyone was going to serve him. He misinterpreted the dream and took it out of context. But as God used him and matured him and took him through the process of life, he got to the place where he saw his dreams come true and he realized that his dreams were not about how great he would be, but about how many people he would be able to serve. His dreams were not about who he would become, but it was all about who God would become in his city. Listen, there's context to your life. If you could just for a moment get perspective on the context of your life and understand that even in the winters, even in the prisons, God is working on your behalf. It says the God who started a good work in you will complete it. He is faithful to complete it. There is a process to this context. He wants to do it. Why did it all come true? Because Joseph kept his heart right. In context lies the truth. And if you'll keep your heart right and you'll stay faithful to God and serve him, I promise you the dreams he's placed in your heart from when you were a little girl will come to pass. I promise you. The third thing about context that I want to tell you is the principle of context. The principle of context. We talked in the beginning about the power of reaping what you sow. Can I tell you that what you sow in the hard seasons, what you sow in the winter seasons matter? If you sow a bad attitude, you're going to reap that. If you sow anger, if you sow frustration, if you sow all these things, and please hear me. It's okay to have moments of anger in these setbacks. It's okay to have moments of frustration. It's okay to ask God why, but it's not okay to live there. It's not okay to set up camp in these places. If you will set up camp in these places, you're gonna live there for a long time. You're not gonna move on until you decide, no matter what, I'm going to serve the God who is faithful to complete what He has started. You're not going to move on until you understand that there's a bigger picture to play than just where you're in, what season you're in. There's a bigger season, there's a bigger scene to the picture than just what you're facing. I want to tell you some practical ways to find context if you're in one of those winter seasons. One of the most practical ways that you can find context is by asking for help, seeking counsel. Just a couple months ago, I was in one of these seasons. I had gotten really hurt by a best friend, and I was in a slump. You can ask Ethan. I was mad. I was hurt. I actually left a meeting one time, and you know when something bad happens, it's like no one's available to answer their phone. And it's the worst timing. You're like, please, someone just answer their phone. And nobody could. Ethan was in a meeting. My best friend was busy. I couldn't call anybody. And I didn't know what else to do. So I just remember I pulled up to Sonic because that's my favorite place. And I grabbed my Bible and I wept. I didn't even know where to open it or read it. I just held on to it and I cried. And in that moment, I felt like God gave me a word. But I wasn't going to apply it because I was still so mad that I was in that season. Fast forward a couple of weeks, we got invited to go to an event with one of our mentors. And one night after the event, we were all hanging out by the fire. And I knew he would bring it up, but I would just prayed the whole week and he wouldn't. And finally, he said, hey, tell me about that situation. You can curse, you can cry. I just want you to fully be honest with me. No filter. Tell me all about it. Well, I did. And y'all, I thought he's going he's gonna to be on my side. Like, I mean, I cursed, I was crying. I was, don't judge me for cursing, you do it too. But I just had the mic and owned it, so done. But I was mad. I mean, I vented out all of it. And he goes, yeah, I could see how that really hurt you. So could I give you another side of the story? And I was like, I mean, sure, you can't beat my story, so go right ahead, try. And he said, well, actually, I was at dinner with that person last weekend. I was like, oh, dear Lord. And he said, and here's what she's been feeling. And in a moment, I was provided context, and I quit sitting in my slump. I quit sitting in my hurt. I quit sitting in my anger. And all of a sudden, I had a game plan for how I could go and change the situation because I was provided some context. You might need to do the same. When it comes to your marriage, you might need to go to your spouse and say, this is what I have seen. This is how I have felt. Could you help me understand what you see. My father, he's the pastor of Gateway Church in South Lake, and um, he just did a very, very powerful message on racism. If you haven't heard it, you probably should go listen to it, but one of the things he did is he used a water bottle at the very beginning of it, and he said, on my side of the bottle, this is what I see, but you're telling me your side of the bottle says this, but the reality of it is I will never know what your side of the bottle says until I get onto the other side. Listen, we're not going to change some of the major issues that are happening in our world right now, whether it be racism or anything else, until we learn to get context of both sides. You're going to have to ask for context. So here's some other, just some practical ways. Get a friend that will remind you. Write them down. And then stay faithful. Speak it out over yourself. Water the seed. Read the Bible. But maybe you're going to have to remind yourself of some memories Some times where God was faithful. I'm pregnant with my fourth kid, which means I should have this whole pregnancy down to a T. But um, this fourth pregnancy has been harder than any other pregnancy for me. Um, And so when I was in my first trimester, I was really, really sick. And I remember thinking, why in the Lord did we decide to have four children? But I was going to push through. But the only way I knew how to push through was I would look at my three children and remind myself that this season ends. That this is only the first trimester. That there will be a season where I will wish that this baby is out of my womb because I will be so fat and have to be rolled everywhere. There will be that season. But at the end of that season, there will be a beautiful newborn with no sleep. But there will be a beautiful newborn that turns into an awesome four-year-old. And then an awesome teenager and then an awesome adult. And But I, I couldn't just tell myself that over and over. So what I did is I went through and I found photos of each child when they were born. And any time I was sick, I would remind myself of their births. And I would remind myself of getting to meet them. And what it did is it provided context for me to remind me that pregnancy is only nine months, even though it feels like eternity. It reminded me that this is only a season because where God had been faithful in the past, he will be faithful again. And so that was my way of getting through that hard season. And I understand that is like, I'm really not trying to be offensive. That is a practical thing for me. But some of you are in seasons where your marriage is really struggling. Some of you are in seasons where your finances are deep in the waters and you don't know where, if you're ever going to get out. Some of you are in seasons with your spouse or, I mean, with your children. Some of you are in that hopeless season where you literally wonder if you're going to make it to tomorrow. And you might not have a picture that you can remind yourself of. But here's what you do have. You have the word of God. And you can remind yourself that God will not change. It says he will never leave you or forsake you. Even in the, valley, in the shadow in the valley of death, he will not leave your side. He will walk beside you. So you can tell yourself that you serve a God who will walk alongside you. You can tell yourself what the Bible says. And in that season, I said, God gave me a word at my Sonic with my crying Bible. And the word was, keep showing up. No matter what, whatever you're facing, keep showing up. That's the only way you're going to make it past tomorrow. Is if you wake up, get yourself out of bed and show up. Uh, I was just at lunch with my granny. I got to tell you this story fast. It's so random. I was just at lunch with my granny. She's one of my best friends and she was talking, she was like, you know, Elaine, if you were to like get out of bed and stay in your PJs all day and not put makeup on, you just wouldn't feel very good about yourself. And I was like, yeah, I wouldn't. Would I? I've never done that. I do it every day. But, and she was like, so I was telling this girl, you just need to get out of bed. And you need to put your face on. I was like, I will do that. Like, and so she changed my life, but it's true. I don't put makeup on every day still. It's not worth it for me. But The reality of it is, every day I will put on the armor of God. Every day I will put on my face to face the season that I'm in. It might not be my physical face, but it will be my spiritual face to walk into the battle that I'm in. The last thing I want to tell you about context is the promise of context. Context is going to give you grace. Context is what gives you hope. Um, I told you that in that picture of me trying to look so cute with my baby bump, I had actually just received some hard news. We had gone to the doctor, and I had had some complications, so we called in, and the only person available was the nurse practitioner. And so they did a sonogram, and she came in, and she said, hey, you have this possible thing right here, and it could halt the baby's growth. Thanks for coming in. Got to go. Bye. And I was like, wait, it could halt the baby's growth? And so like we went home and I was like telling Ethan, I was like, what do you mean it could halt the baby's growth? At what time would it halt the baby's growth? And what? how far will I make it? And what will we do? And And like literally all the fear in the world came over me. I sat in my closet and I would just cry with fear. And I just listened to worship music. I called my parents and they were praying. And I got some scriptures from the Lord that said, fear not for I am with you. I will walk alongside you. I will give you strength. I will complete the good work within you. I had all these little scriptures that I was leaning on. And right before we came here on that Friday morning, we went and we saw our doctor. And we sat down, and he explained the whole process. And he, he explained what it meant for my body to have this thing. And, and basically, at the end of it, he was like, and it's really no big deal. I just need you to know it's no big deal. But in that moment, he gave me the full context, and it gave me hope for my child. When you understand and you receive the full context, all the hopelessness you're feeling will flee. You will have hope. The Bible says in Lamentations 3, verse 21, Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, those who search for him. Listen, I can find hope if I'll put my life in the perspective of the great I am. In Psalms 39 verse 4 it says, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you at best. Each of us is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows in all of our busy rushing into nothing. We heap up wealth not knowing who will spend it. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. James 4 verse 14, Whereas do you not know what will happen tomorrow? For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little while of time and then vanishes away. Listen, if your life is just a vapor, how much less is this season? It's just a season. If I could please just get you to understand that this season will end. Your winter will end and spring is on its way. I promise you, you're gonna make it through this. I promise you, because the God who was faithful to start the good work within you will complete it. This is just a season. But here's the reality of it. Just like Jeremiah 29, 11, it cannot be applied to your life until it's within the context of the body of Christ. Listen, your life is hopeless without God. It is empty without God. Trust me, I was there. I was a nine-year-old little girl who my dad said, let's plant a church. I was all on board. Fast forward a couple years, I began to not feel like the prized possession. All of a sudden, the enemy started to take things out of context into my life and tell me, hey, your dad doesn't love you as much as he loves the church. Hey, this life, it's not for you. The world has something better to offer you. And I was like, okay, great. A little boy came up to me in middle school, said, hey, you want to be my girlfriend? I went home. My dad said, that's silly. Absolutely not. I went back to the boy. I said, my dad said no. His best friend popped his head around him and he said, how would your dad ever know? And for the first time, I began to doubt if my dad actually had my best interests at heart. And I began to look at life with a little bit of difference because I had taken one comment out of context. And so here I was. I decided I would date this guy. It was a harmless relationship. We were in fifth grade. What else do you do besides say you're together? It was harmless. But what I didn't know is it was saying yes to a path that I wasn't ready to agree to. What I didn't know is I was creating a habit in my life to sin. And in that moment, I started a double life. All of a sudden, I was one girl at church, I was the great preacher's kid daughter. But when I got into that school or I got outside of that church, I was a totally different girl. I tried absolutely everything the world told me would make me happy that would fill this void in my heart. All I wanted was to be wanted. All I wanted was to be loved. And so I went to males. I went to partying. I went to all those different things. And yet I was left utterly hopeless. And one night we were out and we were walking around this neighborhood that was being built. And here I was completely empty completely hopeless. We walked into this house just to see what was going on. And I said, guys, I'm not feeling so well. I'm going to stay out here. And I sat down in this cold, empty garage, utterly hopeless. And I said, okay, God, I really doubt you want me because look at this mess. But if you do, I'm all yours. But if not, would you kill me tonight? Because I can't go another day without you. I wish I could tell you all of a sudden life changed. A halo came over my head and I was totally different. No, my friends walked out of that house. I was weeping, they were like, is everything okay? I was like, yeah, it's allergies. See, I had created this ability to be an amazing liar. I was living a double life. It was a habitual lie in my life, everything. Literally to the point where I had to write on note cards what I had told people to try to keep up with my lies. This was my life. No wonder I was utterly hopeless. Fast forward just a couple nights. That night in the garage, I was actually supposed to be having dinner with some family friends, and I had canceled because I just wasn't in the mood to put on the Christian act. Maybe you can relate. And so I finally agreed to go with them. And they're asking me, how's your relationship with the Lord? Y'all, I'm a habitual liar. I'm like, it's fantastic. Jeremiah 29 11. I mean, it was the only scripture I knew. So here I was and finally it got quiet. And he looked down at his plate and if you're living a double life, you hate silence because you always know you're caught. And he looked down at his plate and so I looked at mine and I thought, Lord, please say his steak isn't cooked or something. And then he looked up and we locked eyes and he said, Elaine, I need to tell you something. He said 10 years ago the other night, I need you to know I was nine years old when my dad set me down and said, we're going to plant a church. And the enemy told me, maybe your dad doesn't have the best interests at heart, your best interests at heart. Ten years ago the other night, I saw you. You were surrounded by darkness and you said, okay, God, if you want me, you can have me. But if you don't, I don't want to go another day without you. I lost it. There was no more covering it up. I couldn't keep it straight. For the first time in my life, I knew God wanted me. Not for who my father was, not for what I had done, not for any other reason except that I was his child and he was chasing after my heart because he wanted me. I told them all the sin I had been living in. And at the very end of it, I said, but listen, thank you so much for letting me get that off my chest. But you can't help me. See, I know the Christian way. I know how to act better, and I've tried it. And each time, I end up worse. So you can't help me. And I'll never forget what he said. He looked me straight in the eyes, and he said, first of all, I can't help you. But second of all, you just helped yourself by bringing it to the light. Can I tell you, hope is found only in the light. You will forever be hopeless if you do not come into the light. And so they asked me they said elaine do you really want to turn your life around for the lord i said absolutely whatever it takes i'll do it they said great we think you should tell your parents everything i said well maybe not that much i'll do so i sat down with my parents i had the hardest conversation i've ever had with them and i honestly believed that they would disown me but instead my father stood up And with arms wide open, he said, welcome home. Because I was now home. Listen, my life didn't get super easy. I had to say goodbye to a lot of my friends. I had to do a lot of hard things. But I can tell you I was filled with hope. I can tell you my life was so much better. And so tonight or this morning, I want to give you an opportunity I want to tell you that there's hope for this season. I want to tell you that this season will end. I want to tell you that your winters are going to end, that the spring is on its way. I want to tell you that. But here's what you need to hear. Hope is found in one place, in one place alone, and it is in the Bible. And if you live a life out of context of the Bible, you will feel utterly hopeless. But if you will align yourself with the word of God and come into agreement with the body of Christ, I promise you, the Lord says his plans for you are good. There is a purpose. There is that and it starts today with you aligning yourself with God. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? This morning, actually last night, I couldn't go to sleep because I remembered being utterly hopeless. I remember being fully broken. I remember living that life. And I was so afraid to tell somebody that I needed Jesus because I should have already had him. I was, a, I was raised in a Christian home. I was a church goer. And last night, I, I clearly saw in my spirit, there's someone here today that you've been trying the same thing. You've been living a double life. And the reality of it is you're just trying to find love. You're just trying to know if you're wanted. The enemy has lied to you and told you that all of that is found in the world and I'm here to tell you today it's not. And so I don't want to have this conference and leave without giving you an opportunity to hear that you are wanted by God. To hear that you are called and that he has a purpose for you, but he needs you to align yourself with him. He needs you to surrender. So what I want to do right now is I just want to give you that opportunity. If you're here today and you say, I need to meet the God that you're talking about, I need that hope in my life. I just want to ask you to do something really bold. It's not going to be as bold as telling all your sins to your parents, even though God might ask you to do that later. But it's going to be bold, and it's going to require courage. But listen, he went to the cross for you. The least you can do is say that you'll live for him. And so if you're here today and you say, I need to meet that God, I'm just going to ask you, would you just lift your hand up? No one's looking around. Just lift your hand up. I need to tell you, there's no shame at the cross. There's no judgment. There's healing and grace. You can put your hand down. In your words right now, just say, God, I surrender. I acknowledge you as my Savior. And I ask you to come into my heart and be my king. all across this room I just want to pray for us as a general body of Christ and I just want to say that if you're in one of those really hard seasons God's faithful and I promise you your spring is coming so Lord right now I thank you I thank you that you're the God of hope I thank you that you're the God of grace. I thank you that you're the God of redemption and that you will restore what has been taken. God, right now, I pray that you would deposit hope into every heart. Lord, I pray that as seasons are starting, maybe a winter is starting for some and a winter is hopefully coming to a close for others. Lord, I pray that you would remind them of your goodness that you would hold them close, Lord. And Lord, I ask that you would heal marriages, that you would bring lost children home, that you would heal our bodies, that you would restore what has been misplaced, that you would um, fix our finances, that you would give us wisdom, Lord, on what we're supposed to do. And Lord, may we never forget that the only place we can put our hope is in you. God I thank you that you are for us and not against us that you will never leave us or forsake us that you will walk with us and guide us through the valleys and the shadows of death that we shall fear no evil for you are with us and you will strengthen us you will be our God and we shall be your people may we hear your voice and be a generation of hope to this lost world in Jesus name